Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbritain.co.uk. On the fourth edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, we discover how to share your walking adventures live on the net with social hiking. We find out about two sponsored walks happening in the next couple of months and a walking festival happening this month. And when I was in my teens and 20s, I was uh, a bit too full of testosterone. The natural navigator Tristan Gooley talks exploring. Hello, I'm Andrew White and welcome to the fourth Walks Around Britain podcast. May really is the start of the walking season and we've got more information about some great sponsored walks and walking festivals in Britain in this edition of the podcast. I keep mentioning that we'd love to hear from you about your walking suggestions and any comments you have about things that you've heard on the podcast and you can do this in a variety of ways. There's the easy email, tweet or Facebook wall post Or you can be more adventurous and send us a voice message, which is exactly what our good friend Gareth Jones from Webtogs did from his phone high up on a mountain. Well, hello there. This is Gareth on top of Pen uh, Manchwin in the Black Mountains in the Brecon Beacons recording a a quick memo for Andy at uh, Walks Around Britain. And it has to be said after the sunshine and sun cream of yesterday and sun hat, it's turned a bit grim today. Visibility is about 40 to 50 metres, something like that. Um, and uh, there's a bit of a breeze blowing, as you can probably hear. Um, but it's, uh, it's still great to be out here and fantastic to, to pretty much have the, the place to myself. Off the start yesterday, I saw no one. And I've seen no one so far today as well. So uh, even when you uh, think about sort of some of the busier mountains, it's still possible to get some peace and quiet. Um, anyway, I'm going to conserve some battery and, and uh, yeah, would thoroughly recommend this part of the world. And uh, yeah, best wishes to walk around Britain. Thanks, Gareth, for that. Certainly one to put on the list. And you can see exactly where Gareth went on his trips in the Brecon Beacons, as he's one of a growing number of walkers using a service called Social Hiking. And I'm pleased to say the creator and developer of Social Hiking, Phil Sowell, joins me now. Phil, what is Social Hiking? Social Hiking lets you share your outdoors progress live on a map with embedded media so tweets photos videos audio and that kind of thing that sounds amazing so how does it do that how does it know where you are it it requires a a number of kind of third-party services to work the first part is obviously it needs your your location and it gets that from from one of several sources most popular source is an app for mobile phones called View Ranger, right. which has the added advantage that it also lets you see your position on uh, on ordnance survey maps or, um, or or topographical maps. That's quite useful. Which is uh, which is very handy. And it's got a whole whole host of other really nifty little features. There's a kind of no frills app called Instamapper, which is a, a basic service that just pings your location on a regular basis. Right. So social hiking collects all that information and uses that to create your route. So you can add 
video and and tweets and pictures of that along the way as well yeah what what, what search hiking does is it, it it takes takes your location data from one side to create your route and on the other side it then looks up from a various selection of social media sites for for things that you've uploaded as you're as you're going along so that could be uh tweets on twitter it could be photos that you uh, upload to flickr or to to other web services it could be um videos via services like bamboozer um or audio via services like audioboo and it collects all the media that you've uploaded um in some cases things that you've uploaded when you've got home and then puts that all together on one map so you can see your route but then you can also see all this media that you've been generating as you've been out and about and you can share that with people on on the site and on social networking too yes yeah the the the, the maps appear on the site you can set up for it to, to automatically uh, tweet your followers saying that you're out and about and that a, a live map has appeared you can also embed that into your own website various people have pages where there's a tab on their on their site which just shows their their latest map there's also a, a, a new feature which um, actually lets you rather than tweeting directly uh, a, a message on twitter you can actually send that message via social hiking and it will add a link to that specific location that you're at at the point you sent it so it allows you to give context to to your kind of mini blogs on twitter as, as you're walking or, or cycling or whatever and um, yeah, it helps give that context to a physical location on a route with all your other media now this is exactly what we should be doing with our walks or when we're going out filming the walks but what stopped us in the past has been the lack of a smartphone and we've recently got a smartphone yep. just joined the 21st century and but is, is a smartphone essential for social hiking not i wouldn't necessarily say a smartphone certainly a, a modern phone as long as your phone can use ViewRanger, and there are quite a lot of, uh, of the older non-smartphone Nokias which um, support ViewRanger fine, as long as you have ViewRanger and you have some kind of, of browser on your phone, um, there are various Twitter clients that are very, very simple, very lightweight that you can use on, on quite basic phones. And that lets you kind of do the basics of taking a picture, uploading it, sending tweets, sharing your location. It's only when you start getting towards doing video streaming and and audio and things like that, that that a smartphone certainly makes it easier does it only just work in this country or is it is it an international application no it, it works works any, anywhere in the world really um as long as you have uh, a, a data signal um which obviously it needs in order to, to kind of collect your your, your media and, and your location um it, you can do it anywhere in the world we have jilly who's steadily cycling around the world she, she left england um april last year and is uh, just heading out of China towards Laos. Um, and throughout, she's been sharing their photos, um, tweeting, and that's all appeared on this this kind of quite large map now. She's uh, she's done thousands and thousands of miles. So tell us about how, how this idea came about and, and how you went to develop it. It came about back in 2010. I was uh, planning to do a, a charity walk walking um, off a dyke which goes from the north coast of Wales um, down to the, the Severn Estuary and been using ViewRanger for about a year or so before and I was really keen to kind of have some some mechanism of being able to share what we were doing as we were doing it because I, I, I tend to find when when people do kind of charity events like that, that, that you, you go around and you collect your money and then you disappear off and, and then come back afterwards <laughs> and go, look, I did it. Here's some photos. 
and um, and I, I quite like the idea of actually being able to to kind of it's interacting, isn't it, as, you, as you're going along? Yeah, yeah to, well, yeah, to to, to have to, to have a mechanism that that people could could interact with you as you were doing it and actually see what you were doing and and be part of what you were doing. And I looked at various options which which weren't particularly uh, particularly feasible that didn't didn't do it how I wanted to do it. And the guys of U Ranger were, were very quick off the mark and and put together an, an API for me to let me access it. It's their their buddy beacon feature of U Ranger. Right. And, uh, and they, they produced uh, an API that let me access my, my data of my location. And uh, within, a, within a weekend, I had a, a very basic version up and running. And, uh, and after a few tests and, and, a, and a, bit, a bit of tweaking, um, Social Hiking was born, really. I have to admit, it probably would have stayed a, a kind of personal project just, just for that walk if it had not been for, for various people on Twitter who'd, uh, who picked up on it and... Um, and kind of pushed me into into making it more public, particularly the likes of uh, Tim, who's UK Jeeper, and uh, Phil, Phil Outdoors on Twitter. Um, they both uh, were quite keen in, uh, in in getting access to it and, and letting it be opened up for everyone else to use. Because it's really big now, isn't it? It's, it's a big project. It takes a lot of your time up. It, it does take up quite a lot of my time, yes. I, I fear I might have created a monster. Um, <laughs> it, it seems to be ever-growing in popularity and the, the, the uses people find for it. And I built it as just being a, a way of, of sharing a walk, really, and then to have you know, someone like Jilly turn up and, and go around the world using it. We've got people who have used it to show um, their skiing holiday, letting them share with people what they did on a skiing trip. There, there's all sorts. The, pretty much every, every weekend I look at it and I'm, I'm surprised by, by some of the amazing stuff people are sharing on it. So if you wanted to take part and, and use the service, how do you go about doing that? Okay, first of all, you need to um, sign in on the site. There's a, a sign-in button that hooks into into Twitter. Unfortunately, you, you, at the moment, you do have to have a Twitter account to use it, although that's that's probably going to change uh, in the near future. Once you're signed in and, and given a few details, like a username and things like that, then you need to get yourself some kind of uh, location sharing app. So either download ViewRanger, which is available from iPhone and Android markets, or Instamapper, um, and, uh, and switch it on and connect it into Social Hiking and you should be away. The site is www.shareyouradventure.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Phil. It's my pleasure. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Let's look at some great sponsored walks happening this year. We've got two to talk about now. And Jim Jones joins us from the St John's Ambulance. Jim, can you tell us more about the background to the Cotswold Way Challenge? Yes, I mean... 150,000 people dying in the UK each year in situations where first aid may have made a difference. Obviously, what we're doing as a charity is trying to raise funds so we can train people and, and deliver first aid services to as many people as possible who may need it. And as part of that, our Cotswold Way Challenge is a great fundraising opportunity for us and for members of the public to get involved with us as well. So what's the challenge all about? How long is it? When is it? challenge is on Saturday the 16th of June starts at 9 o'clock in the morning. There are three walks. There's a six-mile walk, a 13-mile walk, and a 24-mile walk. They all start at Cleve Hill, and they follow the path of the Cotswold Way. Now, what we're asking people to do is a minimum um, of £10 to enter. For that £10, we provide some transport and a goodie bag at, at the end of the walk. Also, what we're asking people to do is to get some sponsorship for doing the walk to, to obviously contribute to St John Anderson as a charity as well. How can people find out more information about the challenge? Well, if they go to our website, it's sja.org.uk forward slash Cotswold Way Challenge. There's more information on there and how to apply and, and get involved with St John Ambulance. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. 
no problem. Nice to speak to you. Moving northwards, and Emma Griffiths from the Jane Tomlinson's For All Events is here to talk about a charity walk in the Yorkshire Dales. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Tell us about the walk. Well, we introduced it to the area in 2011, and we weren't really sure how it would be taken up. But actually, on the day and beforehand, we had great take-up on the event, and the day itself was a, was a huge success. So we had people walking out from Settle on a variety of distances, 26-mile, 14-mile, a 5-mile route, and then starting and around Malentan, we had a 4.5-mile route, which was accessible for pushchairs and wheelchairs, and those with limited mobility. Um, so those were the four, the four distances that we introduced, and they both went down really well. We had over a thousand people do the 14-mile route, 500 on the 26-mile, and then a 500 of the other two. So considering we weren't really sure how popular the event would be, we were very, very pleased with the the success of it and and the fact that people wanted to come into the area and visit the area and raise money for charity in the process. So it's back again this year in, uh, in August. Who was Jane Tomlinson? So Jane was um, just a, a regular mum, uh, wife. Um, in 2001, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given six months to live. But over the next six and a half years, she actually defied the doctors um, and actually went on to to compete in a, in a range of long-distance endurance challenges such as the Ironman, three marathons, triathlons. She rode across America in six weeks. She also did the, the John O'Groats to Land's End and then run from Rome to home as well. So she was a very inspirational woman and is, is very well known uh, in Yorkshire. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2007, but before she helped to um, instigate and, and set up the inaugural Leeds 10K. So that was the first of the, uh, the for all challenges that was begun and then as obviously the uh, the walking event in the Yorkshire Dales in 2011 we have also had the Peak District Walk um, which was another new walking event as well so the company itself has gone from one 10k event to eight plus events which kind of encourage people of all abilities to get involved and kind of set their own personal challenges and again raise some money for brilliant causes in the process. How can people take part? What's the best way to go about it? The way to register for the Walk for All Challenge uh, is to head to our website, which is forallevents.co.uk. And from there, you can see all all of the events uh, that are taking place over the course of 2012, but specifically the Walk for All section, which is where you can register for the Yorkshire Dales Walking Festival. That's lovely. Thanks very much for joining us, Emma. Okay, thanks for having us. And the links for both of those sponsored walks are on the show notes for this podcast on our blog. Just click through from our website. If you don't fancy a sponsored walk but would like to go and visit a walking festival, then how about the Lincolnshire Wolds Walking Festival? And here with me now is Angie Fordwich gorley Angie, tell us more about the festival. It's in its eighth year now and has grown every year. And it primarily takes place in the Lincolnshire Wolds, an area of outstanding natural beauty. But it also takes place in the surrounding areas. And, uh, and we also have a few which are outside of the Wolds area on the coast. Um, we've also got a Dambusters Walk, which uh, everybody loves the, the heritage part of that. So um, we do have little bits outside of it, but primarily it takes place in the Lincolnshire Wolds. 
Now, most people think that the Lincolnshire Wolds is an extremely flat place, but, <laughs> but it isn't completely flat, is it? No, some of Lincolnshire is, the Fens, etc., but the Wolds is where the hills are, and, uh, and it is obviously designated as an outstanding area of natural beauty, and it is truly spectacular. There's no view the same, but every view is, is beautiful. When is the festival, and what types of walks are on offer? Um, the festival takes place from Saturday the 26th of May and we have a launch event then at Gumby Hall. starts at 10am and finishes at 4. Gumby Hall is a fantastic building owned by the National Trust and we've been working very closely with them on this. It's also a very important place for Alfred Law Tennyson who was a Lincolnshire boy and a poet laureate and a lot of his poems reflect the area where he lived which was in the Wolds. And indeed, he did write one poem, A Palace of Art, which features the haunt of ancient peace, which he used to refer to Gumby as. So we actually have a real-life Tennyson on that day to actually read the poems and do a tour of the house. There's um, arts and crafts, stalls. There's lots of walks going on. There's a tour around the gardens, a tour to the, the medieval fish pond, which uh, is across parkland there. We have a launch walk coming in from Skegness, which will be waved off by another famous Lincolnshire chap, the Jolly Fisherman, um, and that was, that's taking place from Skegness Railway Station and walking around the beautiful countryside so you come in at the back of Gumby Hall. And it's just a really lovely day for families. There's a lots of things to do, lots of nice things to eat. As long as the sun shines, I'm sure we're going to have a great day. What's happening at the end of the festival on Sunday the 10th June? We have a finale, second year that we've had a finale. Um, last year's went very well indeed. And this year we're holding it in the town of Caister, which is right to the west. So we've got um, both locations for the launch and the finale on the edge of the Wolds, but both equally beautiful places. Um, Caister's a market town. Um, it's so pretty. It's so pretty with its little hills and um, within it and uh, beautiful houses and has a, such an important heritage. Um, there'll be 10 walks going on that day. A lot of them are heritage walks, which start from Simon the Zealot, all the way up through to modern day. We've even got a nighttime walk, which is uh, going to be taking place through a lovely part of the world. So I can't tell you where because uh, you, you only get told where when you actually ring and, and book it. But it goes through a beautiful part of the world. So we'll be walking by torchlight and seeing lots of nocturnal animals around and, uh, and looking at the stars. And hopefully it'll be a full moon as well. So how can people find out more information and to book? Uh, they need to contact... Uh, either the office of Ingersoll Wolves Countryside Service on 01507 609 740 or, or we have a website which is wolveswalkingfestival, all one word, .co.uk. That's great. Thanks Angie for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. And don't forget you can find out more information about walking festivals throughout the whole year by visiting our website at walksaroundbritain.co.uk. Now, for most of us, going out for a walk without an OS map or a GPS unit is an extremely foolhardy thing to do. That is, unless in your walking group is Tristan Gooley. He has worked in travel most of his life, led expeditions on five continents, and pioneered a renaissance in the very rare art of natural navigation. Tristan is the only living person to have both flown solo and sailed single-handed across the Atlantic. His first book, The Natural Navigator, was critically acclaimed and he's recently launched his second, The Natural Explorer. And Tristan joins me now 
via Skype. Welcome to the podcast, Tristram. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Good to be here. Now, I have a basic knowledge of natural navigation. In fact, my knowledge is probably more urban, knowing in which direction satellite dishes point and things like that. But you can navigate much more in the countryside naturally, can't you? Yes. I mean, nature does find its way into into towns and, and cities. I've had a lot of fun noticing different lichen and moss patterns on roofs. And one of my favourites is differing weathering patterns in towns. If you look particularly above ground level, you'll notice there's normally a difference uh, in the stone of older buildings from the southwest corners to the northeast corners. Ah, right, right. One will be weathered more and one will hold more pollution typically. So you get you get some quite noticeable differences. But you're right, out in the country, there's a whole whole nother world to be discovered in the way that the plants grow and react to the sun and, and all of these sorts of wonderful clues. So can you actually navigate a route using these methods? Yes. I think a lot of people are surprised by how quickly they can get into the subject. I often say to people, that the problem I encounter most is when people get complacent rather than think, oh, this is all too complicated, I can't do it. By which I mean, if you're standing on a hill and there's, you can see the sun, if you've got some good natural navigation understanding, there's no need to be constantly referring to other things like compasses and GPSs. It's very, very straightforward. However, if you're in a in a valley in a woodland in fog, things do get a little bit uh, a little bit more challenging. Even even with many years of experience, there are situations that are that are testing. But it's even when it's difficult, it's still fun. I mean, my whole philosophy on the subject is not it's not about necessity. People have generally given up trying to do this to me now because they know that I I, I come back sort of <laughs> come back sort of swinging in a fun way. But but they they used to sort of say ah, but you know you know this is you know perhaps seven degrees less accurate than using a compass, and I'll go. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing, but all the fun is is not to be found in seven degrees, if you know what I mean. Certainly. I mean, to be able to navigate a route and to get to where you want to go, it must be such a great feeling to know that you're not inhibited by technology, even something as simple as a compass. Absolutely. And, And it's actually often the opposite case is true. Technology, whether it's old school like compasses or or GPSs, can actually liberate us. I'll give you one example. On more than one occasion, I've woken up and and walked out into Dartmoor without looking at a map, compass or GPS, just using my senses uh, and natural navigation skills and walked for for many hours. And that's only a safe and responsible thing to do because I've got a map, a compass and a GPS in my pack. I see, yes. So, so, I mean, there are lots of different ways of of skinning this cat. Uh, You can, I often say to people, one of the best ways to, to give yourself a real challenge and, and make what might have seemed like a normal walk into a big adventure is if you go walking with, with a friend and you're going on a new route, say to your friend, OK, today I want you to be responsible for the navigation entirely. When we stop for lunch at the pub, I'm going to get a napkin out and I'm going to trace exactly what we did. And in the intervening hours, all you've been using are your senses and natural navigation skills. And you, you sit down with your napkin. And chances are you'll get some bits of it wrong, but you, you haven't endangered yourself or anybody else. And, and I promise you, you, you'll have had quite an experience. And the, the little grey cells, as Poirot likes to say, will, will have been given a good old workout. So are these skills that we've evolved over the years and mainly forgotten about? Or is it that, that these are skills that people like yourself have developed? Well, it, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the, I'd say the majority of these are skills that we've had at some point in the past, 
I like to think that both myself and the, the sort of growing but still small community of, of natural navigators are now pioneering one or two new ones. I mean, satellite dishes being the obvious ones, but even within nature. And this, this comes back to necessity. There are many times when there are quite easy clues to finding direction. But I, but I say to people, when you found direction, that, that's when things start getting interesting, not when they stop. You know, if, if, if you look at a compass and it tells you, you know, this way is north, that's the time to start thinking, you know, OK, what else is confirming that this way is north? If, if a natural clue gives the answer to you, that's, that's just a prompt to, to start thinking. So those times when I'm walking and if it's a daytime walk, the sun or the, the stars are out, I can find direction pretty accurately, pretty quickly. But I, I keep the senses uh, alert and I'm always looking for new clues. And I, I wouldn't have discovered a, a quarter of the most fascinating ones that I have if as soon as I found direction, I thought it was, uh, you know, the game was over. So your second book has been out for a couple of months now. Tell us more about it. The Natural Explorer came from the first book. What I was finding with my natural navigation experience is that thanks to the success of, of that book, I've been very privileged. I spent a lot of time in the outdoors with, with very interesting and knowledgeable people. And what I was finding was that we all see the outdoors through what I think of as a, as a prism, a bit of a lens. Yes. So I could see a scene and I might spot two or three things that, that, that were of great interest to me. So I might, if it was dusk, I might spot a planet emerging, Jupiter or Venus. Uh, I might be noticing the shape of the trees and possibly one or two other things on the ground. The person next to me would be noticing equally interesting but different things. Perhaps they had a, a geology background or a botany background. And what I thought was, what a fun challenge it would be to, to see if it was possible to bring all of these different layers together into our experience of the outdoors. Are there less places to properly explore these days, though? Well, it, it all depends on what the word explore means. And in, in the introduction to the book, I say an explorer needs to do two things, discover things and communicate these to other people. If you manage those two things, then, then you're an explorer. It doesn't matter if you're discovering a thundering waterfall on the Zambezi or something uh, smaller and closer to home. If you make a discovery and then tell the world about it, then in my book, literally, you, uh, you qualify as an explorer. And of course, now with us being able to send a tweet or update your Facebook status on the top of Everest, that's even easier now, isn't it? Yes, and that's the, the second part of being an explorer. The difference between a traveller and an explorer often is whether you tell people what you find. So a traveller can go to a place that's been visited perhaps hundreds or even thousands of times before. Uh, but if they notice something new, and there is actually always something new, and as you say, use, use one of the opportunities to tell the world about it, then you're an explorer. I don't think you need to come home and write an 800-page tome to communicate these days. Can you put the two aspects together, the, the natural navigator and the natural explorer? Yes. The, the first book really is, is a, a very deep treatment of a, of a narrow subject field. Others have, have called it the definitive volume on, on the subject of natural navigation. Whereas the natural explorer, I don't pretend that it's exhaustive in any one area. So it's meant to be a really fun, educational, entertaining introduction to all the different things not absolutely everything, but but a lot of the things that make the outdoors interesting. So 
from the shape of the hills to whether we'll find puddles and ponds and lakes. I, I go right through the sky, how that's changing, why that's changing, what it tells us, you know, a little bit of weather law. And I actually go all the way into discussing how we are part of the landscape. So some of my favourite things I discovered are, are actually to do with psychology, the, the way different colours that we see in a landscape will make us react. We experience time differently when we see different colours. That was something I never knew before researching the book. So have you always been an outdoors person? Always an outdoors person, but the, the type of outdoors person I, I am has changed completely. When I was in my teens and 20s, I was uh, a bit too full of testosterone. <laughs> I was tearing around thinking, got to get up the biggest mountain I can possibly find. And that, that is the way to experience the outdoors. And, uh, you know, I, I still do enjoy going up mountains. But my perspective now is that I have at least as much fun and find just as much adventure in a night walk in my local woods that's perhaps only two miles long, whereas... When I was in my mid-twenties, I, I got up to the point where I was doing sort of three or four hundred mile walks and taking in a lot of summits along the way. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of the fun of growing a little bit older. And hopefully I've got a, a good few walking years left in me. But I now find that there is as much adventure in a, in a one or two mile experience if I look for it as, as I found in uh, three or four hundred miles as a, as a youngster. Tristan, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks a lot, Andrew. And Tristan's second book, The Natural Explorer, is available from all good booksellers. And you can find our review of it on our blog. Well, that's all we've got time for in this edition of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on Audioboo to guarantee that you don't miss the next edition. Until then, goodbye and happy walking. <laughs>